My name is Nancy Farrow, also known as Mama Lou, and I'm the founder of Epic Experience. Epic Experience mission is to empower adult cancer survivors and thrivers to live beyond cancer. I hope that as you listen to Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer, you find hope, healing, and empowerment. Through stories and education, we aim to guide those impacted by cancer and more importantly, offer love and support to anyone out there who needs it. This is Beyond Cancer. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about finding humor through cancer. And we have joining us Dan Shapiro. So Dan, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, Yeah, delighted to be here. What I'd like to do is just have you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and please include one fun fact for our audience. I'm a clinical psychologist. I was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's disease when I was 20. I'd say, um, and it's been a, you know, a long trek since then. I was in treatment in and, out, in and out of treatment for about five years while I was simultaneously getting a PhD in clinical psychology. And let's see, a fun fact would be that I um, consulted for uh, some television shows like Grey's Anatomy and Private Practice and How to Get Away with Murder. And I think that's kind of fun. That is very fun. Very interesting. Well, when you were first diagnosed, so you were 20 years old. So you're in college supposed to be enjoying all the college stuff. How did you first react when you found out? Um, So uh, I was concerned about chemo and called a friend who was the only person I know who had also had cancer. And he'd also had Hodgkin's disease. And he muttered five rough words into the phone. He goes, chemo's grim, man. Get weed. So I, uh, I wandered into the living room and announced to my parents that I was going to get marijuana to help with the nausea and vomiting. And um, my mother was really against drugs. And a, a side fact about her, she was a, uh, a prodigious gardener, one of these people who poured over her garden all spring and summer, hoed, mulched, fertilized, sampled the soil, pinched leaves, studied seed magazines, um, and you know, she was concerned, but then when she saw me go through my first round of chemotherapy, and at the time it was a regimen called MOP, which was pretty tough. Um, I was, you know, despite the compazine they gave me, which was lame, I was pretty much vomiting my guts out. And uh, when she saw how tough that was, she agreed, you know, okay, I'll, I'll reluctantly give you $40 to go buy marijuana. The guy I'd originally spoken to agreed to find some for me. So I I left and I I bought the weed and I drove back home and I walk in our suburban Connecticut house, you know, one of these ticky tacky raised ranches that showed up all over the Northeast in the seventies. You know, so they're just pretty much made of drywall. (laughs) That's it. You know, so you can hear anything, you know, you hear the front door open. She hears the front door open and she immediately peers down on the landing and she wants to see it, which feels really weird. You know, like uh, I'm not used to, that and then I realized that you know it's her weed so I gave her the baggie 
She looks at it. She's incredulous. Where's the rest of it? Mom wants to know. I go, mom, that, that's all of it. I, I promise. And she goes, that's all you get for $40? You know, and, and I, I go, yeah. So she steeples her fingers together. She looks at me and she says, give me the seeds. So that summer, my parents plowed, fertilized, hoed, mulched, sampled the soil. And in August, the bushy crop arrived. 10 plants were over 11 feet tall in our backyard, eclipsing the sunflowers that had been planted in front of them. It was more marijuana than I could have smoked in my entire lifetime. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks to mom for being the expert gardener. I'm wondering, yeah. did, it, did it help? Did it so, actually help with your knowledge? Absolutely, it, it, it helps. Now, um, you know, in the same way, I think people get the munchies and can eat forever. And they just, there is something about the gut brain axis that is interrupted by marijuana. You know, I think you just don't get these signals. And I don't think I got, I knew I was a little nauseous, but not nearly, nearly as bad. Now, since then, there, there are better anti-emetics, anti-nausea drugs, and you don't have to, um, you don't have to smoke. And obviously there's also, you know, gummies and edibles and it's a whole new world now <laughs> right for you people out in Colorado you know <laughs> it's like going to the mall um, it's true a whole different experience um whereas when I, when I was going through this obviously a it was illegal so illegal that my father used to cut out newspaper articles that said things like drug house seized and he put them <laughs> up on the in this silent protest and he put them up on a super uh, on a sorry on the refrigerator door um but my mother was like, bring them on. You know, she was a real crusader, but it was a tough go. Telling it now, it, it's a funny experience. But at the time, were your parents so scared? Were you scared? Was that oh, all kind yeah. of mixed into the to the humor of the? Yeah, Gail, that is such a good question. Yeah. So I had a 14 centimeter tumor in my chest. Oh. I mean, it was big. I've heard a comedian say, by the way, that the only thing grapefruit are good for is as descriptions of tumors. I don't feel that way, I like grapefruit, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was a big thing right in the middle of my chest. And I had, you know, little tumors kind of going up and down my neck and um, some suspicion of stuff below the diaphragm, which would have made me stage four. And my breathing was deeply affected, so affected that they didn't feel they could do anything surgical because they were afraid they, you know, I'd lose airway. And my breathing was really labored um, because this tumor was pretty much shutting things down. So yeah, I think we were all terrified, but you can't, even in the midst of terror, there's this weird, awkward kind of day-to-day -day normalcy that you get into too, you know, mm -hmm. having, you, you know this yeah. too, like you, the water heater still explodes and you still have homework. You still, like life just doesn't, it's like, oh, well, you've got cancer. We'll just leave you alone. No more problems for you, buddy. Uh, right. No, of course, all the normal stuff happens. And some of that stuff is funny, you know, e even, so it's even in the midst of being really scared, sometimes just awkward, weird things happen. And that's not growing the weed was not actually the funniest. I think one of the funniest things that happened was when we went to donate sperm. Okay. Please share. Uh, yeah. So um, <laughs> when, when I was 15, my mom found the penthouse magazines I'd hidden between my mattress and the box spring. It's a little embarrassing acknowledging that to you, Gail, but it's true. Um, that's all right. And, thanks. You're among and, friends. Yeah, thanks. And I'll, it's just us talking. So. It's exactly. 
So mom, you know, marched them to the trash, trash bins, shouting words like objectification, gynecological, disgusting, and threw my porn away. And so I'm 15, right? I go running out there. You got to know where to go in my room with all my stuff, man. And I fished them out of the trash. And we ended up outside my bedroom door. And I, and I think the trash was filled with like fruit cups and it rained and like it, it they were like literally dirty magazines now. Um, <laughs> In the day, we couldn't get our porn from phones. We had to get magazines. It was tough. Paper. Back then. Yeah, it was. it was really tough back then. So um, we end up outside my bedroom door and I'm like clutching these magazines like a favorite blanket or something. And mom, she looks at me and she's like, wow, you you want them that badly? OK, I could think worst things you could be doing. She turned, walked away and we never talked about my sexuality you know, again. <laughs> so then when I was diagnosed, um, there were a lot of tests. And, you know, and um, we were sitting, waiting to have a Bomer aspiration. My mom and I, you know, we're sitting there in the waiting room. And this woman says uh, that she introduces herself. They start talking, you know, like moms do kind of thing. And her son's back getting a spinal tap. He's got leukemia and everything he's been through. And my mom, you know, they're, they're talking as if, you know, they're getting to know each other so fast that if one needed a kidney, the other one would offer it immediately. You know, and she talks to the other woman describes everything her son has been through, the side effects, symptoms, chemo, the whole thing. And then she stops and she says, uh, has he banged sperm? And my mom is like, sperm? Yeah. <laughs> Loud enough for people in distant zip codes to hear her. And she goes, yeah, the chemotherapy is going to make him sterile. You should donate sperm. And then she goes, wait. And she fishes in her purse. She finds the number on an envelope, you know, waves it over her head as if proclaiming sperm <laughs> bingo. And then hands it to my mom, she takes it, and then they both smiled uh, and looked at me. So when we went back to see Dr. Brodsky, she taps him on the shoulder and says she has something really important to discuss. <laughs> and mom makes it sound like we're going to donate something massive to a charitable organization. Brodsky wants to start chemo immediately. My mom wants to postpone it. They argue back and forth. And then finally, Brodsky says, you know what? Wait here. And he leaves. And he comes back with a CAT scan, a cross section of my chest, and he puts it up in the light board and he points out the grapefruit sized tumor. And he says, you know, there's a little hole in the middle of it. And he said, that thing the size of a pea is his windpipe. That's why he can't breathe. And so that's why I want you to start chemo immediately. My, my mom, she still pushes back. They negotiated, they settled on, we'd have 10 days to explore donating sperm. And then I absolutely have to start chemo. So, speed up a little it's later that night my mother has called the sperm bank most of it sounds straightforward there's some evidence that sperm can live frozen in liquid nitrogen for 10 years maybe longer than when we needed i guess we just thought out there are some details that are not so great the sperm bank is across town they don't have a patient waiting area the technician my mother has spoken to has says that the sperm must get from my body into the sperm bank within a half hour Taken together, these facts mean that I'll have to do my part at home, and then my parents are gonna drive my sperm to the back. <laughs> so it's after dinner, right? My little brother's gone into his bedroom because it wasn't his turn to do the dishes. He comes wandering back in time to see my mother, who's a list maker, making her list for the next day. She goes, okay, at nine o'clock, I give you money to buy marijuana. You're back by 9.30, then you masturbate. Then we get your sperm to the bank by 10 and then I'm going grocery shopping. <laughs> she goes, Any, anything you want from the grocery, honey? 
And I'm like, uh, yeah, Ma, get me some pretzels. And then we all look up at my brother. She's like, anything you want from the grocery? And then my brother like looks at us like we've been abducted and replaced by alien duplicates, you know? And then, you know, ran back to his bedroom silently. So the next morning, I'm in my high school bedroom, surrounded by the trappings of my adolescence. Uh, my father's outside behind the wheels of the eight-year-old Chevy Citation, perched like Mario and Dreddy. And uh, my mother is standing right outside my door. Oh, my gosh. I can hear her shifting her weight, you know. Finally, I got enough concentration, you know, skimpy underwear, pictures uh, from those magazines I'd saved, propelled the magic process along. I raced to the door, cup in hand, opened the door, handed the cup to my mother who took it. She was all business. She goes, pretzels, right? And she raced off into the morning. That was a bizarre not normal kind of family experience, you know, in the midst of all this other stuff. Definitely. That ranks. <laughs> I mean, how can you just ignore it? You know, oh like, my God. you can be in the middle of these horrible experiences and then something just really bizarre and hysterical happens. And you just kind of have to, you know, laugh at whatever you can laugh at, I guess. Oh my gosh. That that's awesome. So I'm curious at what, at what point, I mean, obviously that was humorous at the time, as well as traumatizing probably for your younger brother and perhaps a bit for you as well. At what point were you able to see the humor of it to the point of even sharing it with other people, turning it into laughs and jokes and things like that? I kept journals and I, I did that mostly to cope because, hmm. you know, some people talk to friends to figure out how they feel about things. But for me, writing is almost like radar. Mm -hmm. Tells me where I've been and where I'm going. So I wrote a lot. I didn't really cultivate it for anybody else for about five years. Hmm. It wasn't until I was about five years out um, that I looked at it in any way other than just to cope for myself. I mean, I, I had all these notebooks full of odd things that had happened. Uh, I kept victory points along the way. Like whenever something crappy happened, I rated it a three or two or a one with three being like really, really difficult. And like a two or one and I collected them and then, you know, rewarded myself when I got to 50 points. I, um, and so I had the collection of those like randomly in these notebooks. There's things like Bomar aspiration today, two points. <laughs> you know, like, am I running total? You know, I'm at 36, just 14 more and I'm going to do something really great. But it, it wasn't until then, like really five years later that I put a couple of these together and did them at a talk. Um, and by then I was at the very end of my kind of PhD program. I was right around 25 years old or no 30. I was 30 by then, I think. And have you had any reoccurrences? Oh yeah. I was diagnosed at 20 relapsed. I want to say 13 months later, had a bone marrow transplant relapsed after that. Oh, wow. Uh, about 30, about 12 to 13 months after that. So I was in and out of treatment for five years. So, okay. and in the end, you know, the, at, towards the end of the last treatment, it actually got, it got really grim. I mean, I got septic. I was in and out of the hospital a lot. Mm. I mean, I was given a much lower probability of survival. You know, I've never heard anybody say you've only got this many months to live. You know, in reality, the docs I know don't actually do that. But I was told, look, this is a, the guy said, basically, I don't think I can cure you, mm, but I'll, I'll try. Uh, a guy by the name of Saul Rosenberg, who um, later would ask us if we would name our daughters after him. 
for saving for saving my life, uh, and and he deserved it. But I just think a girl named Saul isn't you know isn't great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with you there. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure you racked up a lot of points then. Uh, yeah, if you're keep during that five points. years. Yeah. yeah, I did. I did. Um, incidentally, that sperm uh, I mentioned this a second ago, but that sperm uh, did ultimately become my two daughters. That is awesome. Young adults themselves. You know, I've got a 25 year old uh, living in New York City and a a 21 year old up at uh, finishing her her time at Bucknell University. Neither of whom are named Saul. Neither of whom are named Saul. Yeah, good. Which call. is understandable. You have them though. That's great. Now, during that time, where I mean, it sounds like you must have been racking up those points because that was very hard. Did you personally find humor, even if you weren't sharing it, kind of in a a talk kind of way. Yeah. Did you no, personally find humor. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. There are odd things that happen that are, that are funny. I also, um, I think I also, you know, some people, we, we become so um, dependent on our physicians and our nurses mm-hmm. and, you know, to manage us through these things. And I think I also tried to be a little entertaining because I couldn't bake, you know, I couldn't make something and give it to them. I couldn't craft something like, Hey, I knitted you a sweater. Aren't I great? You know, I couldn't do any of that stuff. So I tried to be a little, I might've tried to be a little entertaining just to make them in hopes that they might work a little harder, that they might call the extra expert, you know, when things got really grim for me. Oh yeah, definitely. Do you feel like it helped? I mean, I can imagine, I, I thought about this when I was in treatment too. That's a hard job. Those, those oncology nurses, do you feel like it helped them as well? My wife is a pediatric stem cell nurse practitioner. And she's been doing that since the eighties. So cancer has been a part of our lives in a lot of ways, you know, for decades now. And I think she falls in love with a lot of her patients, Mm. you know, just and their families and roots for them and cares about them. And I don't think my being funny or not being funny actually made Mm. probably made much difference for the ones that are in the business for the right reasons. You know, I, I think they, they care about their patients and they work really hard whether they're really entertaining or not in reality. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Have you seen humor help fellow cancer patients over the years? So let me ask you this first before I ask you that. So five years in, you started giving talks. Did it become more of a formal thing where you were a comedian, so to speak? I, I mean, as part of the end of my program, let's see. So this would have been, I would have finished treatment in 91. And then by 96, I was at the end of my PhD program. And as part of that program, it was a postdoctoral fellowship. We were asked to do some presentations. So I, and since I was studying people's psychological approaches to illness, I was in in an endowed fellowship at Harvard. I told some stories from my own personal experience as I was trying to illustrate psychological concepts. And a woman came up to me afterwards and said, um, you, you might be able to actually turn that into a book or something if you got enough of these things together. And you, 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 know, you, should, try, you should try more discipline in a more disciplined way trying to write that stuff down instead of it just being these sort of casual thrown together anecdotes. And I, you know, that was cool advice. So I, you know, I did try to work on them a little bit. That's awesome. How have you seen it help others at, through these talks and through your book? Because I think you did end up writing a book, right? 
I did. I, I wrote some essays that were on national public radio and then got called by an agent. And uh, and she helped me really uh, a great agent in New York, a woman by the name of Judith Ribbon, who really helped me sculpt them into a full uh, into a full proposal of about 80 pages hung together. And and having been on national public radio was sort of a platform that that she thought might be sellable. And, and it, it did. She was right. It did. It did sell. Um, I think humor in its highest form uh, brings us together. You know, it, it's the same experience you have when you hear your words come out of someone else's mouth. It's that same level of validation. And humor is a way of illustrating a story that has the best humor is full of commonalities. It's things we've all observed but haven't quite put together in the same way. When someone says something really funny, I think it's it's often because we can imagine ourselves in that circumstance or it humanizes the situation. I think the lowest form of humor is when, you know, making fun of someone, you know, mm-hmm. like, but, and so humor can be really destructive too, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily humor's great in the illness experience, but at its highest form, I think it draws us together and, you know, and, and that's, and that's something that's available to us at, you know, conferences when we get young adults together with cancer or on these trips that, that epic experience is so great at staging and holding, you know, la- laughter is sort of a glue. Definitely. Oh, I laughed so hard on my camp that I hadn't laughed that hard in a really long time. So that is definitely true. What's another story that you can share with us related to your cancer experience? When I went into the Walmart transplant unit, I brought a lot of things with me um, to keep myself entertained you know, including at the time, you know, VCR, movies, <laughs> magazines, you know, uh, because I was going to have to live in this kind of boy in a bubble kind of thing for a long time. And in a teaching hospital, you run across a lot of professionals, you know, some of them are really warm and, and care and are there for the right reasons and others are a little full of themselves. And uh, one of the things I brought in with me was a high powered battery operated water gun, um, <laughs> you know, just, just, you know, just as a, a goof and I'd use it every now and then. And you see these in transplant units sometimes, you know, with the kids. And, you know, so I had one that I think it took like 16 D batteries or something crazy, oh <laughs> an enormous quantity of, of uh, distilled water. Cause you weren't allowed to, I wasn't allowed to use anything else. But so one, one morning, these three physicians come to the end of my bed and they, and they start talking about me in the third person, you know, this is a 21 year old, uh, uh, white male presents with relapse stage 2B Hodgkin's disease. Uh, he recently presented one year and one month following his transplant with a new uh, uh, superclavicular node. He's on uh, ABVD, adriamycin, yesterday's neutrophil count, you know, just talking about, you know, just kind of rattling stuff off. And I'm like, hey, uh, you know, who are you guys? And they totally ignore me. You know, and the guy, the, the head guy kind of like nods a little bit no at me, like, hey, shut up. What are you even doing here? Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. like, that's the feeling I had. Like, um, and so he keeps talking and I interrupt one more time, you know, excuse me, who are you? Cause they're at the end of my bed and they're pointing at me like, like I'm a specimen. And, um, after this happened three or four times and I had that kind of sinking feeling like they had stolen my space, I realized I was heavily armed. I did have alternatives. So I, um, I sprayed them all down. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And I didn't, I, they surprised me because they were. They were much faster than I anticipated getting out of the room. You know, I thought they'd be sluggish, but they, they must have been pretty athletic. So that was another, you know, and the awesome. younger one, one of the young ones come, comes back like the next day, very, very polite. And 
gentle and hi is this an okay time you know do you mind if i come in can we talk a little you know point taken yeah yeah so awesome you know i thought that was funny i I don't know that they thought it was nearly as funny as i did okay It, it it i love it they were ignoring you you gave them a little lesson yeah a little taste a little taste is there anything else that you would share with someone listening uh, related to going through cancer, finding humor through cancer? Again, knowing it is yeah. a, an extremely serious thing. Yeah. Um, so um, first of all, the name of that book is Mom's Marijuana. You know, I, I, I think there are parts of it that'll make people giggle. But the other thing I'd say is, you know, humor was just the way that I, that I and, you know, some of the people I know have gone through it. But that doesn't mean it's the right way or the only way. And I, I, I think you, you have to go through this in your way. You know, you've got to find your way of going through it. And that may even evolve over time. You know, I was at it for five years and how I handled situations at the beginning was different than I did afterwards. Uh, that's a long winded way of saying there's a lot of doors into that room. And if you've got a way that works for you and it doesn't have anything to do with humor, you know, rock on, just, you know, work your plan. It doesn't have to be anybody else's. Some people view it like a battle and that works for them. Some people can't view it like a battle, like that's really alien to them and they need it to be just something they accommodate, live with, uh, ease up into, you know, their little friend or, you know, I, I have a friend who's this elite athlete who, you know, she's literally won world records for cycling, who calls it her little friend. You know, that's how she thinks about it. And, you know, she's had a long cancer history that nobody knows about. And um, she's this incredibly elite athlete and she doesn't cope the same way I do. And, you know, that's that's cool. So I guess that's my main Hmm. message. If, you know, if if this way doesn't work for you, uh, there's a there's a lot of other ways. And we all have, you know, we all need a, a robust toolbox to get through it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories, for making me laugh. Um, If you are listening and you want to read more, it's called Mom's Marijuana, right? Is the name of your book. So, Dan, thank you. Love what you guys do. And we'll catch everybody next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer. For more information about Epic Experience and our programs, or to donate, please visit our website at epicexperience.org. Music for this podcast is provided by Moonshiner Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us so we can share our story with more people. Also, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are released. We hope you come back and join us for our next episode. Valentine.